It can feel at times like World War II and Hitler and the Holocaust all happened in a distant and almost unreal past. Partly that's because it happened on the other side of the color film line. But we are still living in Hitler's time, and I, I don't mean in the sense that some new trend in fascism reminds us of the Nazis, I mean there are countless people still alive in their 80s and 90s who met Hitler, who shook his hand. Gunther Schwagermann was in the Führer bunker and walked with Goebbels and his wife up the stairs after they killed all their kids, and there's some confusion as to whether he's not still alive as of this recording. He's 105 if that's the case, and he isn't dead in a barrel somewhere, but living memory still encompasses Hitler and the Holocaust. You and I are potentially only one degree of separation from that handshake. The Holocaust has been through a lot since the end of the war. It, it took a while, a long while, for the world at large to truly acknowledge it, but once it sank in, once its scale and scope became widely known, it was an irresistible muse for writers and artists and politicians and polemicists. The incomprehensible, but fully comprehensible, mechanization of death in a setting resembling a factory-making bathroom tile was a topic of study that was too pungent to just take at face value, too ripe not to be appropriated, but thankfully, until recently, too grotesque to use openly as a metaphor. That is, until vulgarity became our only shared language and the dumbest tweeters among us began equating the mundane with the infamous. Back in 1999, the war was only over 54 years prior. The world then was full of veterans in their early 70s, the same age boomers are now. And although a thousand times less obnoxious than even the best boomers, they were perhaps more complicit in the greater crimes of our age. The late 90s were when boomers tried to reconcile with the greatest generation by staging a kind of Huck Finn funeral, bedecked with B-17 flybys and Saving Privates Ryan and Tom Brokaw books, and the old geezers got to be stoic and slightly cross one last time. But those were also peak, let's re-examine the Holocaust days, since it was still possible to bump into survivors at the supermarket depending on where you shopped, and every state college academic and New Republic essayist wanted a crack at a hot take that would reiterate what we insisted was true, that never again. Even Robin Williams thought he could add to our shared understanding of it by pretending to be Jewish in a farcical ghetto with a rubber chicken dressed as a message of hope. But by 1999, there wasn't anything new left to say about it. Why do we say it's unspeakable? We can speak about it. It's not unfathomable. We can fathom it. It's not an aberration, even. Not caused by some impossibly rare and unduplicatable circumstances, the like of which we'll never see again. It was just a large-scale abattoir network staffed by compliant workers, only mildly indoctrinated and trained in basic procedures, and with cruelty and viciousness only in the regular amounts that you might find in a typical commuter. The Enterprise seemed like a mostly understandable, albeit regrettable, 
necessary evil if you just accepted a few patiently explained rationalizations that were no crazier than the anti-vax or boogaloo manifestos, way saner sounding than even the most rational flat earthers, and practically circumspect relative to the mainstreamiest QAnon moms. No, there's nothing about it that exceeds what we all know humans to be capable of. Nothing surprising even. Except maybe that it didn't happen sooner. It's all knowable and regular behavior for humans to bring death to one another en masse, to gnaw on corpses and matter-of-factly flay our neighbors fueled by the narcissism of minor difference. The hardest thing to grasp in our present moment is that this kind of holocaust isn't even inextricable from the Jews. The next time it happens, it will be some other people, and the methods will be more efficient and the results easier to hide. Is it even happening right now in China or Myanmar? Well, yeah, it is. At least I presume it is. We've gotten better at hiding it from ourselves. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it on today's Friendly Fire, Jacob the Liar. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is a pretty decent loophole in the whole the penalty for having a radio is death thing. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. How soon till the penalty for having a radio is death? Hmm. I mean, the penalty for having a podcast is social death. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a. It is actually what the French call the little death when you tell somebody at a party what you do for a living. Mm, right. Le podcast melt. <laughs> oh boy, uh, this is a this is a movie that I had a hard time getting through. Mm. Uh, not necessarily because I think it's boring. I was just uh, distracted by world events. All right. I think. Sure. I was, I was doing a lot of pause and then refresh Twitter, which is never a good movie-watching experience. No, but it, it's also not a real strong endorsement of the uh, immersiveness of the movie, either. No. How many times did you pause it? I don't know for sure. I'm guessing I paused this movie upwards of 20 times. Were you wow. watching it with your wife? I offered this to her, and uh, I think that there are just too many drags in our lives right now, and... A movie about the Holocaust was not, like, super high on her list of, you know, she wanted to watch Love Island that night, so. Part of this is salesmanship, Ben. I, did you sell her the idea of a lighthearted Holocaust movie? <laughs> it's an up, uplifting and hopeful Holocaust movie yeah. about Robin Williams playing a Polish Jew. <laughs> Adam, how many times did you pause the movie on your way through it? I, I understand you watched this movie in stages. I don't want to let people behind the podcast kimono too far, but uh, I made the mistake of watching two Friendly Fire films in one day, and the totality of that uh, took me about eight hours. Ooh. I think most of the stops occurred during this movie. I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I <laughs> I watched this movie all the way through in one sitting, except for one little bit. The internet was down here at the house. 
Well, that gives you a nice pause. Well, my movie partner, my movie watching partner, developed a hotspot on her phone. She linked her computer wow. to her hotspot and then linked the hot linked the computer to the TV through HDMI. So I watched this on a on a uh, you know a full size television running through her phone, and the la- and twenty <laughs> minutes before the end, the phone died because we had forgotten to plug it in. The most shocking part of this story is that you actually watched it on a real TV. Well, so 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 it wasn't that long ago, but as a kind of like you know, I'm chipping in around here for uh, for living in this house. I bought a 65 inch TV for the house, and so now I'm watching all these war movies on a big 4K TV. Yeah, and uh, but but you know, with the, with the phone as the the intercession. <laughs> what use is a 4K TV when your internet is down? <laughs> right, exactly. So she, but the problem was she had fallen asleep during the last <laughs> act of the movie. So her phone died and I felt bad about like shaking her awake to say, where's your, yeah. where's your charger? Anyway, so it, th- there was a, there was a 20 minute interruption there where I, where I weighed my options and eventually I woke her up. But. Her falling asleep during the movie, another indictment of its being a bit boring. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. Let me pose this question to the group. Do you think the casting of Robin Williams is a reason for our feelings this way, or is it one of the redeeming factors of this film? Was that choice with him playing Jacob? I read right before we got on the mic that Robin Williams was nominated for a Razzie for this role. And I was kind of surprised to read that. I did not think that his performance was bad. Neither did I. I didn't think he was the reason for our criticism. Yeah, there's some things that I really like about his performance. And one of those things is the relationship he has with the little girl is like incredibly sweet. And I also think it kind of interestingly references Good Morning Vietnam because, you know, the plot of this movie centers around the idea that Jacob has a radio and at one point he mimics the effect of having a radio by standing behind a a screen and, you know, talking into a soup ladle to, <laughs> to alter his voice. And I was delighted by that. I thought it was. I, I thought that scene was incredibly touching. And there's some really great stuff about this movie. I'm not. I'm not here to just drag Jacob the liar. No, no. Jacob the liar dragged itself. It earned five million dollars at the box office against a forty-five million dollar production budget. I am one hundred percent here to drag Jacob the liar. <laughs> there's <Okay>. our T-shirt. <laughs> I gave. I gave Robin Williams. Two stars, and that's not to say what the, you know the the score of the movie because we don't use stars, of course. But uh, but yeah, I felt like casting Robin Williams as a Polish Jew was stunt casting, and you know, and coming off of his sort of decade long run as a dramatic sort of actor in Tearjerkers. I agree that his relationship with the little girl was touching and and I thought well acted, but he was doing the entire the entire movie in the kind of like he was doing 
uh, Eddie Murphy doing a Jewish. <laughs> hey, your your Alan Arkin impression's pretty good. Except with he also put in the a little bit of a kind of East Europe. It is not very convincing. There's your Armin Mueller style. Okay, keep going. I believe. The problem is that with the Jews, you put the accent on every word or every other word, so you're always doing this talking with the thing, and it's too much. It's you do have to get someone either who does it for real, who's that person, who's. And there's Bob Balaban. This November in theaters nationwide, <laughs> John Roderick is Jacob the Liar. You do something else with it. You go to a different place. You have to be more gesticulative. You can't just be. You can't. You have to do it. it I couldn't. No, I have to say no. <laughs> Did you guys know that there is an earlier adaptation of this novel? There's a 1975 film called Jacob the Liar. Made in Eastern Europe. Yeah, made in East Germany. Wow. And Armin Müller-Stahl is also in that movie. Shut up. What? This is a thing we do on Friendly Fire sometimes. We don't need to watch this next, do we? I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if it's even available for yeah. streaming. It seems like... East German film is probably a hard wow. thing to turn up these days. So, Müller-Stahl was an East German actor. When did he... Oh, and he he emigrated to West Germany in 1980. Mind blown! Yeah. No way. I don't even know what to do with this information right now. <laughs> His name is on the poster of the original film. That is nuts. He was a star even then. Do you think uh, like Robin Williams called for a line and Armin Müller-Stahl was right there? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had this rattling around in my head since the mid-60s. How much do you have to think about it when, you're, when your agent calls you and he's like, hey, Armin, I got a project. <laughs> project you might be familiar with. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Like, how much does he think about whether or not to do this movie? Is he at the point in his career where he's just like, nah, I've got enough work. I don't want to be in this potential Robin Williams Christmas time Holocaust tearjerker. He's a total that guy, though, John. Like, he's in everything. He's he's a working character actor of of the oldest, finest tradition. He is for sure, but I I have to think... I mean, if if nothing else, I have to think that he's like, I should be there at least to... At least to help with the lines? At least to, <laughs> at least to like <laughs> give them an example of what someone speaking uh, with a German accent sounds like. Was his Dr. Kirschbaum character uh, the high point for you? I think, I think he was for me. I really for liked sure. him in this movie. Yeah. Me too. I loved, I loved how canny he is yeah. in this film. Like how... He kind of sees Jacob for what he is in all moments, even before he knows the whole picture. But he's also able to wield Jacob for good for as long as he has any control. He's almost so omniscient and powerful. I thought he was a ghost or something. Like I, he had <laughs> he had a, a strange quality about him. I I kept expecting the reveal to be, and then Armin Mueller-Stahl wasn't there. <laughs> 
I mean, there is a little magical realism in this movie, but it comes way later yeah. and in the form of a jazz band on a Soviet tank. <laughs> right. I feel like he's an example of a character that you see in Holocaust depictions, which is the formerly upper middle class, well-respected, like internationally known Jewish intellectual who has been reduced to the same status as everyone in the ghetto and is, you know, burning his diploma in the, in the fireplace to get heat. I think the reason that character is present in so many Holocaust movies is it imparts that extra dimension of tragedy. It didn't matter who you were. It's sort of, I think, irresistible to filmmakers to use it almost to the point of it being a trope. Not, not an ineffective one, you know? Yeah, like, I, I, I sort of wonder where the trope arises, because, like, the history of the Holocaust film is, like, pretty different from the history of the World War II film, and I feel like the 90s, there was a, a new Holocaust movie every single year. Yeah. I think to watch Holocaust films of the 90s is to experience that time and that place in not just, and not only a tragic way, Right. Right. There is a tragic through line to Jacob the Liar, but it is not. I think it is less the tragedy of the Holocaust itself and more the tragedy of of what? The tragedy of, of lost hope in general. This is part of the reason why I didn't like this film is that like, I think probably the tropiest part of Friendly Fire is that I like feeling things in movies and I am unforgiving of movies that don't make me feel the things. And this is one of those versions of a Holocaust film that is like, uh, it's not in the margins of emotions in any way. It's, it's very safe feeling in a way that I grew to resent as, as the movie went on. That's something that I thought a lot about watching the movie was how far away this felt in the 90s and how urgent it feels now. And that has a lot to do with like what was happening geopolitically the day I watched the movie, I guess, but also because it was made in a time where it was casting back to this unthinkable thing, it didn't seem to have a a very strong connection to the feeling of that. Mm, Yeah. Like there's something, there's something muddled about the way it imagines living in a Jewish ghetto in a small town in Poland must have felt the the one exception to that is that this movie does communicate what it's like to be poor and cold i got ice motherfucker it's hard to show constant cold cold to your bones that you can be when you you know when you're poor Nobody takes their coat off when they come inside in this movie. Right. Right. It makes the rest of it stand in even even bolder contrast because it's not a comedy. <laughs> in, in if if that if that freezing cold is effective, how are you going to laugh about anything? I mean, how how are you going to use this material to get a laugh? And the way that they try and do it is with like weird sort of vaudeville humor we get bob balaban and jacob right up front teaching us its tone right away and i think it is ably 
telling you what it is and how seriously to take it. I think it's just a matter of whether or not we want to experience a film that is willing to give it to you like this is is maybe the problem. Like I, I feel like this this film ably does what it sets out to do, but I don't want it. <laughs> that's uh, that's the thing that kept going through my head the entire time. Who asked for this movie? I think there's a way to make this movie effective, and I don't think that they were wrong in in a lot of the choices they made. Like I love it when comedy actors play serious because there's like a quality about them. Like it almost feels like a a comedian is able to play darker than a normal person because that's like the source of of their comedy. And when Robin Williams is walking around as Jacob, like I definitely feel his darkness, but to not lean the film all the way into having him support it was a bizarre choice to me. It felt like a, a play. Yeah, it w- it did feel like a play. I think it would have been a fine play too. It's the Biloxi Blues problem. It works as a play, but it just does not work as a as a movie. And the the problem is this was never a play. That's where they went wrong. They didn't have it be a play first so that the movie could be a disappointing adaptation of that. <laughs> I mean, 1999, you, you're right, Ben, that we're in a world in 1999 that is, you know, Fukuyama's end of history era. This is this is when Denzel's eating onions. This is post-racial <laughs> America. This is pre-9/11 everything. You know, and it's also it's also the tail end of the era when it's like Holocaust movies are a um you know, like a like a feather in your cap. It's a it's it's like making a Vietnam movie or whatever. Everybody kind of needs one. Yeah. It's post Schindler's list, I guess is what I mean. Life is Beautiful came out two years before this, but also this film, I think, was in production before before Life is Beautiful. Somehow Life is Beautiful, like, was made and released before this movie was done, but was beloved. Like, I, I remember watching the Oscars that year and, like, really rooting for, for that movie. I don't really remember the movie that well. I wonder if there's like a, a bias that happens with with that in that era where you've seen Life is Beautiful and it kind of like did what this movie was trying to do better in all quarters that so so this movie can only feel like a disappointment, which that doesn't explain like why having not seen either film for 15 years I'm having this reaction now to to this movie, but just a speculation. The the review of the of the East German one, I mean, it was very well received in 1975. And one of the reviews says in Dizeit says gently, softly, without cheap pathos and sentimentality, uh, the director of that film, Bayer, tells a story about people in the middle of horror. The remarkable quality of this quiet film is achieved, not least due to superb acting by the cast. Would you describe this movie as gentle, soft, without cheap pathos and sentimentality (laughs) and quiet? Because I don't think and I don't think this film is any of those things. And, and, you know, and the problem is I I hang a lot of that on the casting of Robin Williams. Yeah, but I mean, this was during his Patch Adams phase as an actor. 
when he was leaning pretty hard into these types of roles. Hindsight has allowed us to view his career in totality, and what we prefer to remember are, are those high points. But not every film is a hit in this filmography. Heard that, dog. Hmm. I mean, I slagged on him pretty hard in Good Morning Vietnam, and now here's our second war movie in Not Very Long, starring Robin Williams. I hate to... F- I hate to go on record as somebody who is against Robin Williams because I am not. I am vociferously for Robin Williams. You're pro-Williams. I'm pro-Williams. Well, you know, Goodwill Hunting was only, what, two years before this? I mean, in a way, this is an Bicentennial Man. I don't remember. That's also a comedy drama, right? I didn't see that one either. He's in Insomnia a couple years later, which is... A super psycho role. Yeah, this was this was like dead center in Robin Williams colon serious actor times. Yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> I know I'm not a member of the club, but uh, I thought you might want to hear my idea anyway. I don't. You know, for as much as Robin Williams is known as as the zany, loudly physical, loudly verbal comedian, I think this version of Liev Schreiber is is its mirror. Like the physicality of Leif Schreiber in this role as the dopey cousin Eddie of the thing, I thought was a revelation. How, how often have we seen Leif Schreiber as, as the alpha badass? He is utterly not here in, in a really fun way. I really liked his scenes. His character is such a perfect person to situate in your Jewish ghetto World War II story because he's an enthusiast. He's he's like one of the most hopeful characters in the movie, but you also can't trust him to keep a secret, which makes him uniquely dangerous in a context like this. Right. Uh, you're terrified of him because he's the dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that a film set at a prison camp during the Holocaust and is filled with male characters is almost entirely devoid of masculinity. And Leif Schreiber as an actor is an opportunity to inject that into a story like this. And it's a, a road not taken. Hmm. And I think that's it may be just one of the many deprivations that we are made to feel in stories that tell the story of of the Holocaust, right? Especially early in the film, there's a lot of scenes where a bunch of guys are standing around kind of debating like, you know, oh, well, if the Russians are there, that means this, this, and this. Or, oh, like what kind of planes are those? And it, it felt like a very familiar thing that happened like when the COVID pandemic started where you started to see like all of these people that really aren't experts especially dudes kind of <laughs> kind of self-appoint as as the online reply guy expert of yeah. the covid pandemic and i thought that that was really interesting like that they're they're still kind of like performing this this role and and kind of performing their community despite the fact that it's all been taken away from them but yeah that like leave schreiber is the only one that seems like a full man still i mean you've got the two like young orthodox guys one of whom 
has that pretty touching scene where like invigorated by the fact that the war is almost over. He runs over to a transport train and tries to, you know, whisper to the people inside the train to not give up hope right. and is shot down by it. And that, you know, and he is like a idealistic and undaunted, you know, young guy who, who has like his masculinity intact and his brother or friend or whoever his compadre is in that scene then goes on to become kind of part of the Alan Arkin led group that's against Jacob in this movie. And you always get the feeling that he's one step away from throwing his fists in, but the kind of masculinity that the professor maintained was the kind where despite having been completely deprived of his station and all of his, you know, his worldly status, he maintains his dignity in a way that is, you know, he and his wife together maintain their dignity in a way that they're unbowed, you know, even as they recognize that they have to eat shoe leather. But the, but the fact that everyone else is deprived of their agency is another thing that's like, it's not played for laughs because you couldn't play it for laughs. It's in the movie because you couldn't leave it out. It hangs there like a wet sock on a shower curtain rod. Every time Bob Balaban tries to hang himself in his store, it's like, is this funny? It's kind of played that way. I mean, when we see him, when we see him hanging at the end of the movie... It's a punchline. I think it's meant to be a gut punch, but you're right. It it kind of follows more of joke math than tragedy math. Mm. Everyone in this film is innocent except for the Germans. But like to introduce a child, the the er innocent character in this, I think, makes the degree of difficulty in landing black comedy uh, almost impossible. Because it's not imbued with that, like, the the very darkness that makes black comedy powerful. I'm reading the uh, IMDb entry of Peter Kasovitz, the director of this film, and he was born in Budapest and his parents were taken away to a concentration camp when he was five and he was hidden. Like, he wow. experienced a lot of what the little girl experiences in this movie, but he's also... It looks like he directs almost entirely French films and mostly like TV and TV movies. It seems like it was his his one credit in the United States. And I wonder if there's just a translation issue or if it was like bit off more than he could chew kind of thing or what. Because, I mean, like what an amazing personal relationship to bring to a story like this. I read that there was a tension between the ending of the film as we see it and what may have been written and the book that it was based on. Like, there was an idea for an ending where you don't get the postscript of the train being stopped by the Russians and the and the people being freed from the boxcars that there was a very real version of the story that ended with Jacob's death and his unknowing what happens to everyone else in the camp or that the train just goes on and we roll the credits. I wonder to what extent like 
the ending could have saved the tone of a film like this if instead of a jazz band on a tank, you know, even just removing the jazz band or having the train go on and not be stopped. Do we need the gut punch to redeem the film that came before? I mean, at that point, it just felt like the movie was just throwing stuff at the wall. Yeah, I almost feel like if it had ended with uh, with the train rolling into Buchenwald or whatever, like that would have been emblematic of a film that we didn't watch up until then. That would have been very surprising. I can't argue with that. We're, we're nowhere near the end of the war in the events of this movie. So the fantastical end just feels like a cheap get out of jail free card. If the, if, yeah. if the movie had ended without a voiceover from Jacob, if he'd just been shot without giving a, a triumphant speech, which I thought was an interesting choice. I totally expected him to turn to the audience and go, I did have a radio mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or whatever. Just give some kind of like hero speech. And he just sat there laughing like a dumbass and he gets shot. You could roll credits there or you could roll credits on and then they all, the entire ghetto was forced onto a train and it rolled off, um, you know, to Auschwitz, the end. And it would have, and I think I would have hated the movie even more. (laughs) (laughs) But then it gives us the song and dance routine and you just, I mean, I I, I got up from the end of the movie and kind of like did the like brush dirt off my hands thing where i was like well watch that you were like the gladiator you (laughs) picked up some dirt from your floor and rubbed it between your palms (laughs) i looked up at caesar and he gave me the thumbs down motion and i ignored him i mean that train is very interesting such a pivotal part of the plot that it's actually on the dvd box cover which is where an internet pedant came in to complain would you guys like to hear one of my favorite train pedants that I've yet discovered online. Most definitely. The train locomotive in the lower left-hand corner of the DVD cover artwork is correct for Southern California, where the movie was released in 1999, but it is totally wrong for the movie setting in 1944 Poland. Its cab profile is used on various diesel-electric models built by General Motors for the North American market from the early 60s onwards, it has 1990-style dual low-mounted safety lights, and its red and gray paint scheme bears an uncanny resemblance to that used by the Southern Pacific Railroad in the Western United States in the late 20th century. Wow. <laughs> and sure enough, look at that train. That's not the right train. It's not even the train from the movie. No. I don't even know if this person saw the movie. I feel like they saw the DVD and were like, what? And took to the internet because they know a lot about trains. Uh, You guys have seen Excited Train Freakout Guy? No, who's Excited Train Freakout Guy? I mean, there's a whole group of people who are train nerds. That, That shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. But much in the same way as a person will go see a rare aircraft land at an airport within a day's drive of them. Uh, So too do train nerds go seek out the rare models uh, that they're interested in seeing. And there is uh, a fairly famous video on YouTube that I'd recommend you go see uh, called Excited Train Guy New York. (laughs) And it's one of these guys who is seeing one of the trains he's always wanted to see. And it's a real like double rainbow kind of reaction. Ah, Iowa Pacific. 
number 518. Woo-hoo! <laughs> I love it. You know, I don't want to tiptoe around what I'm trying to say, but like, you know, there are a lot of Jewish filmmakers in in Hollywood. This movie was made by Peter Kasovitz, who was Jewish and lived through the war. It was produced by Stephen Haft, who didn't produce that many films, but he did do Dead Poet Society also with Robin Williams. Mm. But, you know, the impulse to make a Holocaust movie has to be felt very profoundly if you are a Jewish filmmaker in Hollywood. To the degree that, and and especially in the culture that you share with other film people, to a degree that maybe exceeds the American audience for the product. Right. The idea of this movie getting sold in a room where somebody says, it's a black comedy about the Holocaust during Robin Williams. It's a remake of a award-winning film from the 70s, and it's going to be directed by a guy who was a child hidden during the war, and it's going to have Alan Arkin and Leave Schreiber in it. And we're bringing back Mullerstahl. And Mullerstahl is coming, <laughs> who's you know not Jewish, but somehow he plays Jewish guys in like half of his film roles. And just feel the, feel the energy in the room where everybody is like, yes, this is a killer idea. But it is... You know, it's a little navel gazy almost, right? It's none of that was answering. No one asked the question that that was answering. I wonder if that's why Make It a Comedy with Robin Williams in the lead part was the choice, because we feel a personal obligation to tell stories about this thing that happened, but we know that the American movie-going public is not necessarily like looking through the you know, the movie listings for this kind of story per se, but maybe we can, you know, deliver the medicine with a little bit of sugar. Yeah. I think that's it. I mean, I think that sounds right to me. Maybe the fact that it's conceived as medicine is part of the problem too. Right. I I would have preferred more sugar or more medicine, but this mix, the specific mix is what doesn't work for me tonally. Yeah, it's out of balance. Well, and I think it's right there in the ending, right? That the Germans are liquidating the ghetto, but somehow they want Jacob to get up in front of everybody and admit that he didn't have a radio. And then when he doesn't, they just shoot him anyway and liquidate the ghetto. Like the whole idea through the entire film is that there's a real risk to Jacob and to everybody involved not because he has a radio, but because the idea that he has a radio is going to get out and make him a target. The question of whether or not the, they have hope anymore, it doesn't matter. They're, they're getting force marched onto a, a cattle train. And so the, the ending with the jazz band, the reason it's there is to cast Jacob's decision to get shot in the head instead of capitulate against a potential fate where he survived the war, right? Like the whole, that whole bit is like, well, if he had just said, I didn't have a radio, then he would have gotten put on the train with everybody else and rescued by the Soviets. And so it makes his last moment heroic somehow, 
But all of that is so flimsy. The only way out of this movie for us as the viewers is to imagine that the little girl survives. Yeah. This sort of feels somewhat related to, I can't remember what movie we were talking about, John, but you, you observed that often if a film presents us with a woman who's been raped, she will often die. And, and the effect is sort of to spare the audience of having to contemplate how she'll rebuild her life after being violated in that way. And this sort of feels kind of, tangential to that that it's kind of like oh, like there's actually no hope for these people but we'll like present you with this kind of false hope just so you don't leave the the theater with too much of a bummer on it's got to be but it also elevates jacob to some kind of heroic status that doesn't square with the emotional logic of the film then it turns him into a it turns him into a god somehow how is he speaking to us after he's dead <laughs> who, are, who are we hearing from well we're in heaven and he's on the next cloud and he's just telling us some some stories mm -hmm. what do you think what do you make of the like of the message though that there's like there's a lot of value in hope and that even if it's kind of derived under false pretenses that it is important for people even going through something like this to to be given something to look forward to. I think it's a very effective narrative device. Because, I mean, I wondered a lot about that just as a person who feels a lot of hope, hopelessness lately. Like, is false hope better than no hope or not? I watched a webinar yesterday about <laughs> um, Montessori education in times of COVID-19 uh, and referencing also the political moment. The teacher said very clearly, it's important with adolescents to always, um, to always frame the news and frame events with hopefulness attached because adolescents in particular and kids in general, if they get attached to a fatalistic view or a nihilistic view, that can become all-encompassing, right? It's why kids are prone to suicide it's why kids get you know it's why kids become goths mm -hmm. so you know at least in terms of childhood education this teacher was very explicit like do if you are feeling hopeless don't share that with your kid wow as an adult you can manage hopelessness right but a, but a kid doesn't have the emotional wherewithal to manage the message of hopelessness and then I, you know, I had that webinar and then I watched this movie. So I was like, huh, right. If you could send that link to my dad, I think uh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Too late, Adam. I think, yeah, it's one of the areas that the, that the film gets right is the value of that. And I mean, it's the Balaban character that embodies it. Like you can either live with hope or die without it. And when Balaban has the hope, he keeps his neck out of the noose. And when he loses it, uh, that's where it goes in. It's a pretty clear line. Oh my God, you guys. <laughs> Rob, I don't know what to do with this, but apparently in April of 1945, there were three concentration camp trains that left Bergen-Belsen and were headed to uh, 
Theresienstad. God, I don't know how to pronounce that. Well, anyway, they, they left Bergen-Belsen and headed out trying to move concentration camp populations out of the way of allied armies. One of them was bombed by the allies. One of them was captured by the Americans, but one of them called the lost train traveled for two weeks back and forth between the Russians and the Germans and like basically just on the move until it was finally caught in a crossfire between the Russians and Germans and liberated by the red army. Tell me why that isn't a film. It's got the title, The Lost Train. If you are looking to make a Holocaust movie that is a black comedy. Yeah, wow. That ends on a hopeful note. There it sits. (laughs) Ben, here's your screenwriting, your first major screenwriting credit. Oh, boy. (laughs) Just what everybody wants. A Ben Harrison penned Holocaust movie. (laughs) You brought a lot of the pathos of going to Connecticut in the summer to <laughs> this film. I never expected there to be so much tennis in a train Holocaust movie, says Gene <laughs> Shalit. <laughs> well, I think uh, there are some mixed feelings at best about this film. But uh, do we want to uh, get into like an actual rating situation? It's not an official Friendly Fire episode until we do. So I think we will, Ben. Why not just do that? What is the rating system for Jacob the Liar going to be? I decided right away, right off the top, it was not going to be a radio. Couldn't be a radio. It's too obvious. Radio is sort of perfect, though. Too perfect for me. I say, so it's not going to be that. (laughs) One of the questions I had during this movie and during the conversation about this movie is who is it for? And one of the repeated elements in the film that made me ask this question over and over again was how often latkes were defined as potato (laughs) pancakes among conversations between Jews. Like, I find it insane that (laughs) that needs to be defined for anyone here. And I understand if a film needs to define it for a viewer, you get that one time, but I'm telling you it happened five times in this movie. And I think that is emblematic of, of this question, right? Like who is this for? If it's for Jewish people, then you don't need to define what a latke is. If it's for everyone else, What does a film like this want you to feel? I think you need to choose a lane, Jacob the Liar. You can't ride over the median between comedy and 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 seriousness. Comedy and and tragedy. Some very good films ride that median, and I don't think this is it. So one to five latkes and guys, I mean potato pancakes when I say that. (laughs) Wait, potato pancakes are latkes? John, did you even watch the movie? At one point, doesn't he say an apricot light uh, latka? Yeah, that was his best invention. And then the person he was talking to was like, you mean you put apricots on top of a potato pancake? You're insane. <laughs> Sounds like something Denzel would do. Take a bite out of a potato, take a bite out of an apricot. <laughs> he makes the latka in his mouth. Yeah, <laughs> it's a potato pancake, but in his mouth. 
Jacob is our main character, and we know so little about him. The restaurant that he owns and operates is a big part of his life, but we're only there for one scene, basically. There's just so much lacking in a film like this, and it's too bad because it is absolutely stacked in terms of cast. Like, you you run down this call sheet 10, 12 names down, and they're all just total bangers. I, I think this cast is amazing, and it's too bad that they're underserved by the material they have here. I think it begins to ask interesting questions. It begins to give you a sense of how much can be done with a notable comedian acting sad. I think the tragedy is like right there. It's so close to being felt and and to be, and like we're deprived of that. It's so weird to like want more tragedy than we get. There is not enough here Like, I feel like our our rating system says a lot about whether or not we want people to see the movie that we've talked about. And I just, I feel like I really give poor scores for films that, that don't try, that don't give it enough effort, like than the ones that just try and fail. And I'm not sure to what extent this is one or the other, but I think it's probably in the middle of those two ideas. I think I'm going to give it one and a half. Latkes and guys. Wow. Brutal. I got to tell you, a latke is a potato pancake, in case you didn't know. Well, I had a tough time watching this movie, not just because it kept making me want to eat a latke, but also because of the guilt I felt that I would inevitably feel if I was eating a latke in front of these people. Uh, But also just, yeah, I, I feel like it's a movie that wasn't even well suited to the time it was made for and that time is so different from this time but there's some sweet things about it and um that did make me think and i'm going to be a little bit more generous i think i'm going to give it two and a half pancake slash potato latkes i just can't i can't recommend it as a thing to watch even though there's some great actors just chewing up the scenery. Mm-hmm. Bob Balaban is great. Alan Arkin is just playing the same character that Alan Arkin plays in movies and has for the last 30 years. And depending on whether the movie needs Alan Arkin in it or not. Um, <laughs> I always need an Alan Arkin in my movies. I usually feel like I do, but sometimes, you know, like I, I wished that Alan Arkin had stretched a little bit because he's always playing the father who is a retired actor who, you know, like he's always that it's a little bit like Jack lemon. You know, the way Jack lemon is just always Jack lemon. There's not a, you don't see Jack lemon in a movie and go, wow, he's playing like a French guy. Mm. The moments where you are cold in this movie and the, the moments where you're genuinely afraid are real. But I just don't, I just don't recommend it. And I think I'm going to give it two latkes, which are potato pancakes. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You can have them with apricots. Huh. Ben, who in Jacob the Liar is your guy? I guess I'm not clear on if she's the professor's wife. I, she must be his wife, right? The the lady that's always answering the door for him. I think if you don't have a wife in the camps, you probably select a camp wife, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. It's like your work wife. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, I liked uh, I liked the bit where she said she imagined Jacob would be taller. Like <laughs> he is like what passes for a celebrity in the in the ghetto in this town is a guy that said he had a radio and word got out <laughs> and she has pictured himself him in her mind and uh, I just thought that that was so sweet. Uh, I really liked that moment. I liked her a lot too. I thought she was great. Yeah, very like communicative through her eyes. Uh, Adam, did you have a guy? My guy could only be Kirschbaum who kills himself at Hardlove. <laughs> <laughs> this is the centerpiece scene in the movie for me. This is this is what I want to feel because uh, this may just be, you know, as Ben was saying, the today bleeding into into the movie watching, but like I want to see Nazis hurt and punished and disappointed at all times. And this was the centerpiece of the film that made that happen. A, a guy with the power to save a Nazi life that chooses not to uh, felt darkly cathartic to me in a way that I think there were opportunities in this film to multiply scenes like that. But uh, instead, you know, we get a funny bathroom scene with a with a Nazi maybe crapping himself instead. You know, <laughs> I'm all for Nazis crapping themselves. Don't get me wrong. Like if if maybe that's the lowest level. Like start with the crapping of themselves, then finally get to that that crescendo of Kirschbaum's act, uh, which I just loved. So he's my guy. My guy has to be the Nazi that's crapping himself. <laughs> um, we don't see a lot of distinguishable Nazis in this movie. We get the young blonde commander who is predictably cruel and callow. We get the one guy in the green leather trench coat who looks exactly like Benny Hill, <laughs> who's a sadist. And then we get the guard who makes Sergeant Schultz look like George Clooney. Sorry, that's a reference that I guess just flew right by you two little chickadees. Lol. My, my, <laughs> my people will get oh, it. Oh, John, you were a delight. <laughs> Good one, John. <laughs> um, so, so we're, you know, we're in a classic World War II movie where all the Germans are both vicious and cruel and also total boobs. Mm-hmm. But you almost never see a uh, a Nazi guard portrayed as such a boob, such a like ugly, dumb boob <laughs> as Nazi guard number one, the poopmeister. He's the dumbest and the ugliest Nazi. So every time he appeared on the screen, I was like, this is part of the movie that we're meant to think is a dark comedy. And I rejoiced. He's my guy. Good guy. We got through it, right? We're done with Jacob the Liar. I think so. But is there something better for us in the future? I want to hope that there is. Yeah. Let's see what the uh, 120-sided dice gives us. Much All like right. Jacob the Liar has us examining the value of hope, so too <laughs> does the 120-sided die. Here we go. Here we go. One hundred and five. Big number. One oh five. 
Gentlemen is a Vietnam War film from 1991 directed by John Milius. Wait a minute. Haven't we watched them all? Flight of the Intruder, it is called. I was wondering when we were going to get to this one. You've got John Milius and John McTiernan as co-directors. Oh, really? And Basil Polidorus as the music composer. This is... This is right up my alley. This is up wow. all my alleys. I don't see John McTurnan on the IMDb credit. I wonder what the story is there. I think we're going to find out, though. Okay. Well, that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. We're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's from here. So for Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go spoiler alerts. Listen to me. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmar. Now is the perfect time to revisit older Friendly Fire episodes, like the one we put out last year around this time, covering Zero Dark Thirty from 2012. It's a film directed by Catherine Bigelow, starring Jessica Chastain, about the Navy SEALs strike that killed Osama bin Laden in his compound. Feel like supporting our show? Head to MaximumFun.org join, and for as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive our Porkchop podcast feed, you'll also gain access to all the Maximum Fun bonus content. Don't forget... You can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.